We are at the end of Advent, the fourth Sunday of Advent. Advent is a way of saying arrival. It's an anticipation of, a, of an arrival, typically a royal arrival. And so for the last four weeks, we have been considering the arrival of Jesus. We've been trying to get to know Jesus a little bit better over the course of these last four weeks. And the main text that we've been using and referencing throughout is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And so in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, which is originally probably one of the first Christian hymns that Paul pops into his letter to the, Philipp- to the church in Philippi, he uses it to show them who Jesus is so that they might have humility in their life with each other. And in trying to stir up this humility, Paul is showing that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so I'm going to read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and you'll see that that's right there embedded in that text. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ has come. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ has died. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Christ is risen. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ will come again. And this week, we are considering that last piece, the second coming of Jesus, the return of Christ. And so to do that, we are going to also use a passage from the book of Revelation that gives us a picture, a symbol of what that will be like so that we can understand that better, so we can anticipate it well in this season. And so I'm going to read also from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Please pray with me. Father, we are gathered here this morning in the name of your Son. And God, as we consider his return in light of his first arrival, Lord, I ask that your Spirit would be among us to prepare us to receive him, that we would receive him in this word this morning so that we might receive him with joy when he comes in the flesh on this day. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to worship you this morning, that you would help us to respond to your word, that you would help us to love you, that you would help us to desire you above all things, and that you would strip away all distractions, that we would be filled with your love, the love that you pour out on us in your Son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas. This is a very fitting text to read at Christmas because it jumps right to the fulfillment, the purpose, the end of the first coming of Jesus. It shows us why he was born in the first place. It shows us a glimpse of the future of this world, your future, my future, our future. This future is certain. It is more sure than us all getting up out of here in four or five hours after I'm done preaching and walking out this door. More certain it is that Jesus will return. It is the most certain thing about this world. And so we have to understand Christmas in light of the second coming. And honestly, it helps us understand his first coming because we are situated in a context where we are anticipating his arrival just like Israel was anticipating his arrival. For hundreds of years, they were longing, they were looking, they were waiting for the birth of the Messiah. And we today are longing, waiting, looking for the return of that same Messiah. And so Christmas comes to us in a context. And the context of Christmas is really the context that Scripture lays out for us. It's the overall meaning and message of scripture. And so I'm going to summarize that. It's going to be a kind of like a high-level sweep this morning so that we can understand what it means that Jesus is coming back. And we're going to look at this context through potential, defilement, 
and perfection. Potential, defilement, and perfection. So first, potential. Well, in Revelation 21, John is given this vision. And the vision is of a new heaven and a new earth. I don't know what that must have looked like. Probably really overwhelming. Why? Why was he given the image a vision of a new heaven and a new earth? Well, it's because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's what the text tells us. Why did the first heaven and the first earth pass away? Well, it passed away because God created it with latent potential. He created the heavens and the earth, which is just a way of saying everything that exists, he created. And he created it for a purpose. He created it to bring him glory by communicating how abundantly good and rich he is. And so he created, he formed it, but he formed it with potential. He didn't form it perfectly. It was good, it was not perfect. Because he wanted his creation to participate in the work of bringing about the perfection that he had planted in the seeds of creation. And so at the very center of the first heaven and the first earth was a garden. It's a beautiful picture. I don't know if any of you are gardeners in here, but you don't have to be. You can imagine it, and you can long for it. Imagine a garden of perfectly tilled soil that was fertile, aerated, oxygenated, fertilized, just waiting to be planted, waiting, willing, yearning almost, the ground itself wanting to produce the fruit of the seeds that you had ready to plant. And so you have this beautiful land, you have this beautiful earth that was created for this purpose of bearing fruit, of producing And in the garden, there's gardeners. And the gardeners are set in the garden together with a partner to work the land. If work, you can even call it. It just completely escapes us because our work is all cursed. We'll get there in a minute. Their work was only good. It was only joy-filled. There was no toil. There was no futility attached to it. They would plant things and they would grow. There was abundant water. So you have a garden and you have a gardener and you have everything necessary to make this garden blossom into a beautiful place. And they had each other. They had each other and they had orders from the maker of the heavens and the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill this garden. Push the boundaries of this garden out until all of creation is like this garden. And fill it with people. And let these people know that I am the God who has made this. And I love this creation. And I want to care for it. And I've placed you two as stewards of it. 
to show off to this creation my goodness, my love, my abundant harmony. We just get glimpses of this, I think, in our life. For an artist, it's a blank canvas with the paint all laid out, with a, just a crystal clear vision of what they want to produce. For a computer programmer, it's a dark room, energy drinks, and no one to bother them or mess up what they do. For a parent, it's the quiet hours, usually pre-dawn, when the kids are all asleep and everything's at peace and the day has potential. For me, what resonates with me is a baseball field that's perfectly manicured, aesthetically just beautiful, and hasn't yet been played on. There's potential. It's just waiting to be fulfilled. So what happened? Why did this first heaven and first earth have to pass away? Well, it's because it was defiled. It was defiled. And in Genesis, we know that it was defiled by the temptation of a serpent and the willing rebellion of the stewards of the garden. God's very own creation rejected him, rejected the plan to depend on him for our understanding, for our wisdom of good and evil, and to instead make it for themselves. And so ushered in to this perfect garden, this perfect heaven, this untainted earth, was defilement. And the categories that we get here help us, and they kind of cause a response in our souls. At the very end of this passage, when it talks about what won't be present in the new heaven and the new earth, we get categories for what this defilement brought in to that potential. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexual immorality, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, So these just give us broad categories and buckets of things that come and infect this garden. They corrupt the seeds. They harden the land. And all of a sudden, there's weeds. There's stones. The land doesn't bear fruit willingly. It resists. You plant a seed only to learn that the seed was corrupt from its very beginning. And so the garden is defiled. The potential seems kind of lost. And you spend your life as that gardener trying to recover it, only to feel resistance and futility at every turn. The visual image that we're given is a sea. In verse 1, it says, the sea was no more. 
Imagine the sea as being representative of kind of the swirling around of all of those other things, those moral imperfections, those defects of our existence. And it kind of swirls around in this sea. And the sea is a fitting image, especially for ancient people, but also for us, because it's chaos, it's threat. It's uninhabitable. We need oxygen. And so if you go to the sea, you're at the mercy of a powerful entity that will consume you and destroy you. And this is how that image figured in Jewish literature and in kind of the overall perspective of the scriptures is it's a place of death and destruction and chaos. And so the sea is this place of defilement. It's this place of a marred creation. It's a place that's dangerous, that's unwanted. And I think all of us can resonate with that. We know that we exist in a sea at times. There's going to be seasons in our lives where we feel at the mercy of forces that are bigger than us, and that are threatening our existence, threatening our happiness, threatening our contentment. And we feel lost in that sea. But there's another type of sea. And this type of sea resides within us. It's the swirling tempest of our own hearts, our own desires, our own yearnings. It's what takes us away from God. It's what separates us from him. It's what prevents us from even wanting him at times. And all of us, we know from Romans 3, have this sea within us. We are in need of something to calm that sea. And so we're defiled, and we live in a defiled world, and this is the context of Christmas. And just as it is for us, so it was for ancient Israel. As they were existing in exodus, as they were existing in exile, as they were existing east of Eden, cast out of the garden, they were at sea. And specifically, at the time when Jesus was actually born, they were existing in a period of 400 years of divine absence, silence, no prophet, no word from God, nothing to assure them that they were going to be okay, nothing to assure them that God had not completely and utterly forsaken them, except for the scriptures that they had already had. And so they searched them. They looked through those scriptures, and they were clinging to promises, clinging to what God said he would do. And some of these promises occur in the book of Isaiah, written by the prophet Isaiah, and they map on pretty well to what we're talking about. This is Isaiah 65 verse 17, and it's the promise. 
And in this context, Isaiah is preaching to a people who are facing exile, facing discipline from God for their faithlessness, facing an enemy that is more terrible than they can imagine, who's being called into their land to take over their land, to take over their homes, and to send them out. And this is the promise embedded in this story. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And again, in Isaiah 66, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And this is the context that Jesus was born into. This hope, a deferred hope, aching hope. I mean, just think of 400 years is a long time. Our country hasn't been around for 400 years yet. And so this is generation after generation after generation, silence, and just these little seeds of faith, hoping that God would do what he promised. And I think of Simeon as he's praying to God, as he's getting old. 400 years and this man of faith is bold enough to say, hey God, don't let me die in the next you know, year or two until I see this Savior, this Messiah, this Anointed One. And then he saw Jesus, and he knew that God had answered his prayer. And this is where the story gets interrupted by the incarnation, by the arrival of Jesus Because Jesus reminded Israel of that potential again, that hope. The hope that maybe this time God's promises will come to fruition. Maybe this time we won't mess this up. Maybe this time this Jesus, this Messiah, will lead a new Israel to take the land again, to kick out the occupiers, and to be with God in his city. And Jesus, throughout his life, throughout his ministry, all of a sudden, he starts fulfilling the potential that God had created his people to have. Jesus was worshiping him, worshiping his father, in truth, with a pure heart, offering perfect sacrifices. Jesus was honoring his father and his mother perfectly. Jesus was perfectly loving of neighbor to the extent that when he starts his ministry, all of a sudden he starts healing. He starts restoring the defilement. He starts making things new. And so the people start following him. And they start hoping, this surely is the Messiah. And they follow him, and he frustrates them. Because it seems like every time he has the chance to elevate himself, he kind of like puts a lid on it. 
said, don't, don't tell them about that. And it's because that was not actually what he had truly come to do. Those were all signs of what he would perfect. But the work that he had come to do, if you remember a couple weeks ago, was to go to the cross, to enter into our defilement. Not just by being born into the sea of our defiled society, of being subject to sinful parents, sinful siblings, sinful friends, but to enter our defilement so much so that he took our sin upon himself and he took it to the cross. And so you can understand the confusion. You can understand the despair that the disciples had when they saw Jesus crucified, when they saw him breathe his last breath. Because the hope was again deferred. But just like we talked about last week, three days feels like an eternity in the moment. But when he rose from the dead, when the Father called him forth from the grave and his body had life again, those three days, it's like they never happened. Because Jesus showed that he had fulfilled that potential perfectly. And then he ascended. (laughs) And he left us the message of this hope. He left us each other. He left us his church to steward that message that we would hold to it, that we would wait for the perfection that we got to glimpse in Jesus' resurrection. And so facing all of us today is we have this kind of like fork in the road. How do we want to live in the sea of defilement that we find ourselves in right now? How do we want to live? How do we want to wait for the perfection that Jesus has given us a glimpse of but said that would only happen when he returns. How do we want to wait? And one of the ways that we often wait, this would be not the good version of waiting. It's summarized in this quote by T.S. Eliot, one of his poems. And he's speaking of humanity. He says, They constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within, by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. But the man that is will shadow the man that pretends to be. You see, we get impatient. And so we start imagining, we start dreaming up human perfection. We start dreaming up ways that we can have heaven on earth now, where we don't have to wait, where we don't have to be subject to the sea anymore if we can just create this artificial environment where we're safe and we're protected. And we don't even have to be good because the systems are so good that we've taken care of everything. 
And what T.S. Eliot at the end of that says is that that's just pretending because it hasn't dealt with that sea within. And so the other way to wait is to look for Christ, to trust that he will return. And when he returns, he will bring judgment. And judgment is something that, especially in this kind of cultural moment, is not very popular. But I want to present to you a different way of understanding judgment. And it's something that actually we all want desperately. We all need desperately. We need judgment. And we need this judgment because of our experience with cowards and faithlessness, with the detestable, with murderers, with sexual immorality, with those who conjure up magic, with idolatry, with liars and deceit. And our experience is twofold. We are victims of all of those things. We live with other humans who are those things and who create suffering that we are subject to. And so we long for a world where we're no longer subject to those things, where we don't have to worry about if someone is telling us the truth. We know they are because all there is is truth. We long for a place where life is not snatched out of our hands. We long for a place where our children are safe and where they flourish and where the most vulnerable are protected and nurtured. We long for that place. And what we're told here in Revelation is that when Jesus returns, all of that will be removed. It'll be separated from this new heavens, this new earth. There's judgment And then there's another reality, is that we all, all of us, if we're honest, and this is why I love this list, we all belong there. We all can locate ourselves in that list. Okay, so maybe murdering is a stretch for some of you. Maybe you feel like you're pretty sexually moral. Okay. But I wonder if you've ever lied. I wonder if you've ever been a coward where you've ever kind of went the path of least resistance out of fear, even though you knew the right thing to do. I wonder if your faith has ever wavered. I wonder if you've ever doubted. You see, we all are in that list. We all have that sea raging within us. And why Christ's return is good news for us, even as we say that, is because for those who are trusting in Christ, the judgment has already happened. 
and it happened on the cross. And he satisfied the righteous wrath of God for you. If you are in him, if you are trusting in him. And when he returns, it will put an end permanently to any experience of those things that you have. You will never doubt again. You will never lie again. You will never be sexually immoral again. And these promises happen only when he returns. Until then, we are waiting. We're struggling. We are fighting. We're repenting. And we're believing. The other thing that you see from this passage of what happens when Jesus returns is that there is a great healing. So not only is there a judgment that puts an end to evil and that removes the sea of chaos, but there's a healing. He restores the people. He comes and he wipes away every tear from every eye. I was talking to one of my daughters about this as she was sad for whatever reason. I just wondered what Jesus' hand will look like as he wipes her cheek when he returns, when he wipes my cheek, when he binds up all of our wounds we will see him. And it won't be by the eyes of faith, but it will be the eyes of sight that see him. And then it just gets better. The other thing that happens when Jesus comes back is kind of this bigger picture. It's this bigger, bigger image. So far, what we've been talking about is kind of individual and maybe collective. It's what's happening for people, to humanity, But now, think about this. What John says initially is that he sees a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So, new creation is material. This is the perfected garden dropping down from heaven. You see, he's not just making me new. He's not just making you new. He's making all things new. If you're a biologist, you should be really excited about this. (laughs) Because you are going to be able to study a new creation. You're going to be able to find out the material design of God as he intends it to be in its perfect form. If you enjoy exploring, this should excite you. Because you're going to be able to explore a cosmos for eternity. There's no ticking clock of imminent death. You're going to be able to enjoy a new creation. You see, you've been lied to, many of you, to think that what our eternal state is, is kind of disembodied, floating, sitting on the clouds, strumming a harp. That's Greek. That's Greek mythology. Scripture is perfectly clear that our eternal destination is material. 
but it's material that has been sanctified and filled with the glory and the presence of God. So it's God coming to our earth to make it new. Our union with him as his bride. This is another thing that happens when Jesus comes. You see, coming down with that city are a people. And that people is described as the bride, the bride of Christ, his people, all of those who have been washed in the blood of his cross and made new by his spirit. We will be so united to him that there is no longer any separation. There's no longer any divine absence. There's only perfect fellowship, perfect harmony, perfect love. And notice this. The original stewards of that garden, Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, who disobeyed, who rebelled, who defiled that potential, are replaced with the new Adam, the last Adam, Christ, and his bride, his people, without any possibility of defiling this new creation. So that we will together perfectly steward this new creation, perfectly reflect the glory of God to the cosmos. This is a hope that we can live for now. In verse 7, John says, quoting Jesus, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. You see, for all of us who are trusting in Christ, this is our inheritance. This is our reward. This is our promise. And so we can live for that. But oftentimes, that just seems too far away or just not real enough, too disconnected. And so we'll start creating our own inheritance. We'll start creating our own rewards and start living as if Jesus has already come back. We'll start living as if he has nothing for me to do here. And so I'm just going to enjoy myself. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. You do you. Friends, your retirement is not your reward. A peaceful night's sleep is not your reward. A loving marriage is not your reward. A life free from pain and misery is not your reward. It's not nearly big enough. It's not nearly powerful enough to fulfill the longing that you have for your potential. Instead, your reward is the maker of all of those things. He's the one who's created it. And you get him. 
And when you get him, you get all that other stuff. But if you exchange that for what you have here, you'll get neither. And so persevere. Take seriously Jesus' words, his exhortations throughout his ministry to repent and believe and leave, live a life of repentance and belief continually. Search out your soul for all of these detestable imperfections and apply the grace of Christ to them now so that you're preparing for his return. Live for the hope of that inheritance. Make that your why. Allow that to empower everything that you do. When Jesus comes back in Revelation, I mean, it's just impossible to imagine. Think of how long it takes us to get to know a city that we've just moved to. We're finite, and so we can only take in so much at a time. What is described, this new heavens and this new earth, it's so overwhelming to us that in Revelation, what is described when Jesus comes back? Silence. This deafening, cosmic silence as all of creation stands in awe of this new heaven and this new earth and the Lord and maker and redeemer of the new heaven and the new earth. So now we understand the end of this Christ hymn in Philippians. We understand why that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow above the earth and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because that new heaven and that new earth, this is described by Augustine at the end of City of God. He describes it as a place where there we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. Because the grasses of this world will wither and the flowers of this world will fade, but the word of God endures forever. Please pray with me. Father, we praise you. It's futile to even try and imagine how glorious that day will be. And yet, Lord, you have given us the promise of it. You've given us this glimpse of it. You've given us these hints at what it will be like. And so, Lord, I ask that our souls would be thirsty for you. That we would come to your Son for the water that he gives, that we might never thirst. And that in this life, we would live faithfully. That we would seek to follow you, seek to obey you, seek to love you. And Lord, we cry with your saints for your return. We long for it. Help us to wait for you, Lord. 
pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.